Welcome to Wine Road, the wine, when, and where of Northern Sonoma County. I'm your host, Marcy Gordon, with Beth Costa, Executive Director of the Wine Road. Welcome to Wine Road. Today is episode 88, and we have a special guest, Bob Bath, who's a master sommelier, and he's also the Wine and Beverage Professor of Wine and Beverage at CIA Culinary Institute of America at Greystone. Welcome to Bob. Thank you, Marcy. I'm super excited to have Bob here today. Um, I was involved in a press event about a month ago working with a lot of different um, AVA directors here from Sonoma County, and uh, we have this press event called Sonoma House, and we invite journalists here who are not wine writers. They're maybe um, just starting out as freelance writers or a lot of lifestyle writers, and we bring them here to kind of introduce them to wine. And so we had Bob do a presentation for us, a um, tasting and I sat in the back of the room thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is one of the best tastings I've ever sat through because you made it so approachable. So I thought, we have to have you on our show. <laughs> and you know what? That's a great service because, you know, my background is travel writing as well as wine writing. But a lot of travel writers don't know how to approach wine. Mm -hmm. They really don't know how to write about it. So you get a lot of articles about the wine was red or white. They can't grasp an easy descriptor to help people understand where they are, what they're tasting. So it's always good to have some instruction. Well, Beth and Marcy, I think you're both exactly right. And and wine can be in, intimidating. And uh, here we have a, a beverage that's one of the most natural and one of the most historic beverages on the planet. And yet we seem to make it very, very complicated. And so uh, what we need to do is is really make this something much more accessible. And I think we're we're getting there, but I think sometimes that enthusiasm is something that, that causes us to, to maybe over-educate and, and maybe in some cases as a result of that intimidate uh, people who, who just want to learn a little bit about and, and ultimately just enjoy wine. Yeah, it can become intimidating when people think they're being tested when they taste a wine. Or they're going to be wrong. Like you, you, you ask someone to describe it and they... Is that the right answer? It's like, well, there isn't a right answer, is there? I don't know. <laughs> no, there isn't. And uh, I think that the main thing with wine is that uh, I think it's a, it's a progressive experience. And, and I think all of us who enjoy wine, we probably at some point, uh, our, our palates change. And, and certainly, I think talking about wine and being able to identify what you like or dislike is really the, really the first step. And then in baseball analogies, to me, it's like getting to, to first base. And so often uh, we're asked kind of what kind of wine we like. And I think that that kind of terminology immediately is a little bit challenging for people. But if you if you think about the real, the, the basics, whether a wine is dry or sweet, whether it's heavy or light, whether it's tart or smooth, even if you can do those three things about a wine, that's going to give the other person uh, who's serving you the wine or recommending a wine a lot of information. So it doesn't have to be very elaborate descriptions of what you like or even varietally oriented. It, it can be something that, that's as basic as that. And if you think of all wine that way, I think ultimately you'll kind of identify ultimately kind of what you like and then ultimately be able to find those wines that you like. And that's really kind of the goal in the first place. Right. And also I think it helps the pourer guide you to maybe you just like X type of wine, but if you can give them a little bit more, they can say, well, if you like Sauvignon Blanc, you might like this. It I helps think that's them right. Add to their portfolio of tastes. Yeah, and I think what you'll find out ultimately, you're right, is once you find what you like, you'll find out that there's so many fun things out there to try. So it's it's really not a matter of finding one thing and staying with it, 
that those always can be your favorites, your your go tos. But for me, the the beauty of exploration with different wines and different regions and and different styles to me is something that ultimately I think you'll kind of enjoy more than just the the thing that you do know. But when you have that reference point, it's probably easier to kind of jump off and 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 really at least put those things in context for what you really uh, like. And and in, on the other hand. I wouldn't guarantee that you're going to like everything that you try. And then, then we have the final piece, which, of course, is with food. And I think in many cases, we we taste wine kind of in a vacuum and say we like this wine. And yet, if you think about it, wine and food, are to me, are kind of the natural partner. So I think that's where the, the final step is, is that when you're when you're having food with this wine, what happens to that wine? What is it that much better? Does it make the food taste that much better? And I think that's the, the, the context that you should be thinking about ultimately with any wine. Absolutely. And it's funny because I was just writing something. I think in our last newsletter, I said something out about uh, the recipes that we have on our website and how, you know, we live in wine country. So we always look at what wine do we have and then we pick some food to go with it. <laughs> go with the wine first. What do you really want to drink? And then, you know, find some food to go with that. That definitely makes a difference. Yeah, that's what I do. I always look at the wine list first, but, you know, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's a whole discussion too, just in terms of how wine and food interact as as well. And I think when you look around the world, when you look at Italian food and Italian wine, for example, the two are kind of made for each other. Mm-hmm. And yet right. the, the level of cuisine, even here in, say, northern Sonoma County, I mean, these wonderful restaurants, and, and in many cases, the, the wines do go really well with the food. And we have chefs who are very sensitive to that, and they're creating food that in some ways pairs wonderfully with mm-hmm. that. So that kind of sensitivity, and I think those opportunities are really kind of fun when you're in a region because you want to discover the wines, but you want to discover the food of that region also. And I always tell people, just because it's what you drink all the time, if you're coming here to go wine tasting, yeah, experiment. Try things you haven't heard of before and things that you're not familiar with. Experiment. That's, that's the whole idea. That's when we had we had a whole uh, show dedicated to Rhones. When you look at grapes like Roussan and Marsan or even grapes like this perhaps that you haven't tried before, uh, I, th- I think it's okay to say I like it or even I don't like it. I think so often there's this fear that that uh, perhaps you're saying the wrong thing or you're describing it the, the wrong way. And, and I think that's kind of the first step, again, in terms of, of being comfortable with your, your palate. And then it's it's okay to like sweet wines. And, and I think what happens probably for a lot of us is that we probably started with sweet wines. I know that that was really uh, my very first wine that I fell in love with was Riesling. And and I, right. I, I thought one point Riesling and prime rib was the best food and wine pairing <laughs> in the world. And go. from a technical <laughs> standpoint, that probably isn't exactly right. Yeah, that's and a yet, little odd. It worked. I loved reason. I loved prime rib. So there so that, you go. Perfect. I call that an emotional pairing, actually, in terms yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and we'll always have those emotional pairings. But on the other hand, over time, I started to try other white wines. I started to try drier white wines and then ultimately into red. And you can see that, I think, in a lot of people where their palate kind of progresses through that. So uh, at the, on the other hand, if you like sweet wines and want to stay right there, you can do that. And I, and I, I don't think there's a, a necessary pattern or steps that you have to go through. Right. Well, this brings up a question I have for you is, how did you start on your path to get your become a master sommelier? Was it that prime rib and Riesling? <laughs> you said there's more here. <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, both those, Riesling and prime rib, relate specifically to uh, to a, a restaurant that I worked in, my uncle's restaurant in Kansas City, Missouri. And in oh my, my summers God. in college, I worked with my, my uncle in his restaurant as a, as a waiter and and that's really where I first got exposed to, to food and wine. And, and my family is uh, uh, originally from the Santa Rosa area, from northern Sonoma. And he had 
gone and moved to, to the Midwest. But uh, in the Midwest, sweet wines were very popular, and particularly Riesling. So that was kind of my first experiences. And in being in college, uh, that was something that was, was kind of exciting, learning about wine and kind of moving perhaps beyond beer and, and really kind of enjoying fine food with that wine also. And then uh, I was very fortunate in college, actually, my first job was working for a company called Gallo, obviously a very large <laughs> company here in, in California. And I was hired as uh, a campus social consultant. Uh, and I did wine seminars for fraternities and sororities even when I was in college. So I got the bug for wine very early on. And uh, then moving on into working in restaurants and learning about wine, uh, to me, it was it was I was always the most knowledgeable person about wine at the restaurant, and I wanted to have some type of of challenge, some type of of confirmation in terms of how I fit in the wine world. And so the Master Sommelier program ultimately became kind of that credential that I was looking mm-hmm. for. Really, the fact that it was outside of the restaurant, it was something that was a third party uh, validation that right. I really knew a lot about wine. And then, where did you take your coursework in? Well, then we ultimately moved out to California, and I was in Monterey at the uh, the Sardine Factory as their general manager oh, yeah. for four years. And what a uh, wine cellar there. Yeah. And so I, I created the first Grand Award wine list program in, in Kansas City at my uncle's restaurant. They came out to another Grand Award wine list here in Monterey. So I was really kind of spoiled in a way of being in great wine programs with a lot of knowledgeable people. And that's when uh, I learned about the Master Sommelier program. And so that was about a five-year process after discovering it there that I ultimately passed in, in Monterey. So it was very symbolic, I think, not only the place where I'd learned about the program, but where I ultimately passed. But I, I wanted to teach about, about wine. My father had been a teacher at UC Davis for 30 years, not in wine. He was in dairy science. But uh, it was, uh, as I say, in my blood in terms of teaching. And, and I think that, that teaching about wine became something for me that I, I just saw the opportunity. And, and for me, it was so easy to get excited. And, and I loved learning about wine. I think that's part of what, was, as an educator in wine, you're always learning. Um, and I think as a consumer, I think you're always learning too. And I think that's what uh, the fun thing is, is that I tried this new grape or I, I had wine from this new region. And I, I think it's something that to me is so dynamic that you really, it never gets old. Well, and I think too, people have to have to be told that it's okay. You Like you said, you're not going to like everything. My husband it drives me nuts. I mean, after this <laughs> many years, he's still open a glass of wine and, or bottle and, and pour it and not really care for it. And he goes, I don't think this is good. What do you think? Like, well, what is... What difference does it make what I think? It's you're going to, are you going to drink it? If I tell you that it's good, are you then going to enjoy it? I mean, no, you have to, it's whatever you like. And people just need to know that that's, we don't all like the same things. I feel very sympathetic to the, to the, person who walks into a, a local Safeway oh, yeah. and sees all these wine labels. Yeah. How do you how do you pick that? All and right. even being someone who knows an awful lot about wine, I think that can be even a, a little intimidating. So the ability to try different things, learning just a little bit will take you a long ways. But at the same time, learning a little bit about wine, I think, and, and progressively building on that is something that you'll kind of find fun to do rather yeah, than something that's work. Mm-hmm. And no matter where you live, there's some wine stores that are going to have tastings, and they, they might invite winemakers to the town. I mean, the winemakers here along the wine route are on the road constantly all over the country doing tastings either in restaurants or in wine shops. So, yeah, the more you can go and experiment. And I, I think it's interesting, too, is that if you look at kind of the European model – in Europe, 
for the most part, they kind of decided that this grape was the best grape for this region. Mm -hmm. So when you taste a wine from Sancerre, it's going to be made from Sauvignon Blanc. In California, we don't necessarily, first of all, have those rules, and maybe we don't necessarily even have that that match yet in terms of the perfect grape for a perfect region. And yet, when you look at Russian River and we think about Pinot Noir, right. when we think of Dry Creek Valley and we think of Zinfandel, when we think of Alexander Valley and we think of Cabernet Sauvignon, we're starting to see these grapes at least mm -hmm. that have uh, for sure excel in those regions, even though that might be the only thing they grow. But part of the beauty of visiting these regions too is that you're not going to go to a tasting room in Russian River and have just Pinot Noir. You can try several different wines. And to me, that's kind of a, a bonus. I think that's a super, super bonus. I also think it's great when you go a place when they are just pouring one varietal. Uh, uh, for instance, I know that Roadhouse Winery in Hills when you go there, they might taste six Pinots. And for a customer who really isn't sure what they like, if you can taste six Pinots side by side, you, the light just goes off because one of them is for sure going to stand out in your mind as your favorite. And the person that you're with might pick a different one entirely. And so I think that's just a good example of we, we all like something different. I have a question too. Do you see a difference between a different way that like maybe the boomers versus the millennials approach wine? And what do you see are some trends in that? Well, millennials to me are, are, are fascinating. I stand in front of them almost every day at school and, and they're, they're information hungry and they're also very information savvy because they have a little thing in their hand oh, that, that's that, that right. accesses check information everything, look up everything. Mm -hmm. incredibly quickly. So I think what you have then is, is really uh, somebody who wants to know the story. They want to know the uniqueness of that, that product. The, the downside of that is that their attention span, their loyalty is incredibly short because they want to try so many different things. They don't necessarily commit to one thing right away. And I think the thing I noticed also is that there's a real interest in, in food in millennials. And, mm -hmm. and I think they're, they're really integrating that part kind of right away. So they don't want just the singular experience. They want the kind of the bigger experience. So if you have somebody who's just starting, uh, you know, they're just turning 21 and having their first glass of wine. <laughs> so how do you think people should go about just kind of starting to learn about wine? Well, you mentioned retailers earlier, and I think visiting wine country too is a great thing because so often when you're in a, in a tasting room, you're going to have a chance to learn a little bit too from people. And, and really, I think that to me is getting in a learning situation. And there's great wine classes being held too, at, whether they're at, uh, again, campuses or, mm -hmm. or wineries or, or facilities around kind of uh, northern Sonoma, actually around all northern California. But I think doing the process with someone also, I think is really fun learning mm -hmm. about wine and sharing that and sharing your different palates. To me, that's really important also because immediately you have that contrast of, of two different types of palates and you're going to learn more, I think, tasting with somebody else than you would just by yourself. Mm -hmm. I also think culturally, the, the Psalm movies have really created this desire in younger people to want to know more about wine because it's so like, wow, you know, they bill it as the hardest test in the world. Right. And there's something so engaging about that. And I think you see more and more pe younger people, especially going into wine education, just not because they're going to pursue a degree, but because they want to know more. And you're right, the Saw movie, I think, when you look at all these movies, uh, even Sideways for that matter, I right. think these type of movies have helped create more of a mainstream feel for, for wine in our culture. And I think mm -hmm. that's really important. Something like Saw, and you watch that, and, and just from personal experience, it takes all the fun out of wine right away in terms <laughs> of it. But I think it, it does show the commitment that you can make and certainly the commitment of people in the organization that, that want to go through this, that ultimately want to give back. I think that's kind of the process they go through in terms of of really kind of proving, like I said, to themselves and, and, and again to a third party, that they really have that 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 special ability to, to talk and to taste and ultimately serve wine uh, at the highest level. 
So uh, we're, we always talk about, uh, you know, wine descriptors and how it comes to your memory of, you know, the smell of grass, grass being mowed at, at front lawn or you know, that's some memory. So you'll appreciate this. I was with Marcy. This is nothing to do with wine. <laughs> but we were at a restaurant in Philadelphia a year or so ago, and we had this pate that was delicious. And like as soon as I started to take a bite of it, it just smelled amazing. And Marcy goes, oh, my gosh, that smells like warm puppy breath. And I thought, it does. <laughs> it does smell like warm puppy breath. And for some reason, that was so warm and engaging. And I just love that. I don't know why more. you ate it after I said it, that. It sounded delicious because isn't that the sweetest thing ever? Warm puppy breath. Yeah, it was good. I, I can believe you remember that. But it does. Well, there's something to it. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. There is something to it. And I don't think we'll see that too soon on the back label. Yeah, probably not. In terms we, we told the, the server, and, uh, like, don't tell the chef. <laughs> Sounds smells good. I don't think they were impressed. Yeah. <laughs> but it does speak to this. And I think so often I get students that say, gee, I, I'm just not very good at this. I, yeah. I can't taste wine. And what's wrong right. with me? And it's it's there's nothing wrong at all. But there is something that you have to kind of appreciate about yourself is that from the moment you're born, you're kind of collecting sensory memories. And, and your brain is processing these smells and we have a very developed olfactory system. And because of that, uh, and in connection with our brain, we've been storing these smells. So those kind of smells to me are kind of a, they're triggered by wine. And I think that's really fascinating because everybody has the ability to do that. We just don't necessarily do it on a regular basis. So it's not like you can suddenly summon this this ability. But once you start practicing it, once you start thinking about it, you really start to smell things. You start to pay more attention. And this is what I love about wine also is that I think people who enjoy fine wine, they wind up enjoying fine food better because they're 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 just paying Pay more, more attention. attention to the smells yeah. and and a lot of my students sometimes are, are are culinary students and I love culinary students because their olfactory systems are very developed because they're around food and and herbs and spices and everything every day and their descriptions of wine are incredibly accurate mainly because first of all they don't know that much about wine and second of all they're drawing from those personal experiences that are very very fresh in their minds in terms of of cooking in a kitchen. Yeah, well, and I think you just have to think about it. We don't take the time to think, but when someone plants a seed, like as soon as you said that that night, I thought, oh my God, that is exactly how that smells. Exactly. That was a fun. But I would never have come up with that in a million years. <laughs> that restaurant went on to win a James Beard. Oh, that was that good. one in Philadelphia. Well, yeah, that we, was. A really, we have style. We, <laughs> we we definitely tried a lot of different wines that night. It was very fun. Uh, but. Well, and yeah. that's a good point you bring up too. Is that you know, how many wines should I try if I'm if I'm out wine tasting for the day? And 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 I think you have to kind of keep this in mind too. Like I said earlier, is that if you're tasting just the wine and without food, uh, again, it's it's something that again you have to be fairly conscious of. Oh, is yeah, that definitely. you really need to have a game plan during the mm -hmm. day, and you need to have a, a a good breakfast, and there needs to be lunch in there, and there needs to be kind of hopefully a, a great dinner afterwards, and maybe not over scheduling the number of wineries that you visit, the number of wines you taste at each, and it it sounds a little bit uh, structured, but I think you kind of need to have a structure. That is there. so important because at scheduling is always a tip we say. It's like, you know, four you, wineries you is about to pay tops. attention. It, it adds yeah. up quickly. People are, are assuming that it's a taste. You know, it's an ounce or so, but you know, four or five ounces is a glass, and so you go to four or five wineries. That's you've drank a bottle of wine throughout the day, and you probably and plus it wasn't even one bottle. It was red and white and rosé, and it was it's just a mix of things. It's it's not a good plan. That's a no plan. <laughs> well, I think so often when you're tasting wine, too, and particularly you go to a tasting room, they may only pour you, say, two ounces of wine or something. And in a glass, it seems relatively small. Seems, but yet, right. that's, that's plenty of wine for you to really get a sense for what that wine mm -hmm. is. Right. And I, I think that's what you have to keep in mind, too, is that, yeah, you might 
buy a bottle of wine of that one that you really liked, and you can enjoy that another time. But those little two-ounce tastes to me are are really kind of a practical way of tasting through. And you want to, obviously, you may not be in the region that often, and you want to take advantage of the opportunity, but you need to be a little kind of practical also. And you need to take some notes because really it does become a blur. I mean, these are all new wines yeah. for you and new wineries, and you know you definitely have to have a copious notes of which ones you liked and what you liked about them. Yeah. One thing I really like, too, is that uh, I didn't grow up in the era of cell phones, but now with, with cell phones and with apps like Delectable and, and Vivino, mm-hmm. just taking yeah. a picture with your cell phone, too, of these, I think that creates a, a natural catalog for you. Yeah. You can even go back and rate them if you want. I think in many cases, it is hard to remember those mm-hmm. wines. And if you're tasting those six different Pinot Noirs, you want to take a picture of that one because you say, oh, I know we were tasting Pinot Noirs, but I can't remember which one it was. I, I finally figured that out. I, I pour wine a lot at festivals and people or, you know, going from table to table and like, I really love that. I'm like, take a photo, take a photo. That is the way to go. So yeah, do we, ha- do we have a book of the day today, Marcy? Yes, yes, because I knew Bob was going to be here. I, I selected a book that's, um, it's not new, new, but it's, I think it was out last year. It's called Wine in Place, a Torah Reader. It's by Tim Patterson and John... Buchenstein? Exactly. <laughs> Buchenstein. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Got that. Anyways, um, this is a little more scholarly. It's not, um, you know, a light read. This book is fascinating because it talks about really the elements and the qualities of the land, the terroir, that influence wine. But it's also very accessible reading. And I had a question for Bob because this comes up a lot about minerality. And the concept of what minerality really is. Can you enlighten us? <laughs> well, without getting too technical, I, I really want to kind of put this in, in context, too, because first of all, we look at grapes like Chardonnay, and Chardonnay is grown throughout the world. And yet when you taste a Chardonnay from France and you taste a Chardonnay from California, even if they're made exactly the same way, they're going to taste different. And the question is, why do they taste different? This is the same grape. It was made the same way. Well, then you can hypothesize at least, or at least correlate the fact that this place where these grapes were grown, i.e. France versus California, have different conditions, different growing conditions. The vine is requiring some very basic things from the soil, and, and they're what we call micronutrients and the things like potassium and nitrogen and things that any plant kind of needs to live. On the other hand, are there some flavors that are coming from that soil? We haven't really been able to identify those yet. But when you look at the soil, when you look at the climate, when you look at the topography, which are kind of the three pieces to what we call this this idea of terroir, all those are having some kind of impact. So even the altitude of where these vines are, the depth of the soil, the angle with the vineyards facing towards the sun, uh, the, the, the breezes that might be coming off the ocean, all those things factor into the growing season for that particular vine. And even those growing conditions might bring out different flavors in the grape. So it's not like you can say that that this is specifically a component that's coming from the soil that's winding up in the grape. Now, I think a lot of us, we latched onto this term of minerality because we we, we like to think, and I think motionally and, and perhaps practically so, that the, the soil is somehow giving a flavor. And in many cases, as I was talking earlier, say, about Sancerre in, in the Loire in France with the Sauvignon Blanc grape, is there a flavor that comes from that soil that can't be duplicated anywhere else? And those soils that are unique enough that I think we've, again, 
made that connection between, say, those those type of tufa soils or schist-type soils that we'll find in regions like that, that really with the flavors that come out of the grapes. So what does minerality taste like? Uh, does it taste like uh, wet rocks? Does it taste like something like gravel? Does it, does it have kind of a chalky-type taste? And these probably, from a technical standpoint, have more to do with the pH of the wine. They have more, more to do with, with flavors that are just inherently in any wine. But do those type of soils produce more of those type of components that make us think of something like minerality? Right. And, and my understanding is only limestone soils that truly can be identified as being uh, having a minerality quality. But it's, it's a, a term that persists because it's, I think it works well. I think people can relate to it, even if it's not coming from that vine or from that grape. And I think you're right. I don't think we'll ever, uh, well, we haven't re- yet reached that point of saying, here's that flavor in the rock and here's that flavor in the grape. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we can say it does affect the, the growing conditions for that grape. And right. because it affects the growing conditions, then you have to assume that there's, it has some impact on that, that wine, even though we might be not giving it the, the right title is probably the best way to put it. But the, the idea of, uh, we look at with the slate soils of the Mosul with Riesling there. We look at the limestone flavor that maybe comes out in, in say, the great wines of, of Burgundy. Each region, and I think part of the fun of, of going to these different regions and visiting is, is learning about the growing condition. What's mm-hmm. unique about the Pinot Noir in, in Russian River? Why why did they decide on this this grape, and why does it taste so unique here? Well, part of it's definitely going to be those soils. Definitely part going to be that, that flavor right. that comes from this place. And seeing the lay of the land. And, and I do recommend this book, even to people who are just getting in the wine, because it's it really talks about place in a way that it's very understandable, but it really gets deep into the why. And um, I think it's a great book, even if it's not super filled with photos. It doesn't have photos. I always yeah. go for the book with the yeah. photos. But, but, um, <laughs> but it, it answers some complex questions. And more than that, it raises a lot of questions. It did for me. So, And do you use this in your teaching? I do, as a matter of fact. And, and John Buchenstein, we call him John B. for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. but the, 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 it's a collection of essays in there as well as their writings. And I, I love it because, to your point, the, the essays take different points of view. And so it's not just one person saying this exists or this doesn't. It brings up just a really kind of a lot of interesting thoughts along this topic. And, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it for a long time. But then we, we wind up going back to Europe, I think, ultimately, just in terms of in many places, again, where you can only grow one grape and you're growing the same grape as yeah. your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing you're really going to be able to talk about is really your terroir because right. that's the only point of differentiation you have. So I think particularly in Europe, they, they embrace this concept because they need it to really help their customers understand what's different between their wine and that mm-hmm. property that mm-hmm. is right next door. Right. But it truly does taste different. You know, it's not a marketing it's point. A, no. So that's what's fascinating about it, that it isn't marketing. Um, but yeah, so I highly recommend the book. And if you take one of Bob's classes, it'll probably be on the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it is a good read, Marcy, and I agree. And uh, the last piece of this, too, is winemaking. And I think, again, remember, you can say, well, is man part of terroir? And, and, and for a long time, I kind of struggled with this. But ultimately, we are the interpreters of terroir. So you'd have to say that in some ways, we really are. Because we're making those decisions that the vine would probably make on its own. So we are uh, in, influencing it. 
certainly in that regard. So really the styles of wine, and perhaps you like a wine where there's a little bit more oak on that wine, or you like a wine that has a little bit lower alcohol. These, again, are all decisions that that the winemaker has made, but stylistically, that might be something that lines up more with your taste. So understanding a little bit about the winemaking style, to me, is important also, because that's going to be something Mm -hmm. that's going to affect your taste and ultimately your appreciation of that wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge too. Um, I think that's kind of uh, wrapping up. I do want to mention that a week ago, we did finally launch tickets for our Wine and Food Affair, which is the first weekend in November. So you can go to wineroad.com, click on Wine and Food Affair, and there you could come and have a whole weekend of wine and food pairing. That's a great way to start because when you go to the wineries, they're really selecting the perfect pairing for that wine. Yeah, You know, they put a lot of thought into it. So it gives you a great opportunity to taste what goes together really well. Mm-hmm. I'm putting that on my calendar now. All right. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here and enlightening our listeners about I'm so wine. Um, yeah. I think people need, you know, we don't want to over-educate, but it's always great to have a little a little sensibility more about what you're getting into when you're, you're enjoying wine. Well, thank you, Beth. Thank you, Marcy. Tasting. This has been a pleasure talking with you guys about wine. All right, folks. We'll see you on the wine road. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.